Good morning, church. If you're new with us today, we are in a, a series titled Wise Up. We're looking at uh, sex, money, and relationships, and uh, how these two key things have such a huge impact in our lives. And we're uh, focusing primarily on what the Bible says in its wisdom books, a, a group of books in the Old Testament that are uh, designed to talk to us about living, wise living, the best possible way to live while we're here on earth. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in the book of uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, you can see that in your worship guide, there's a, a guide there for you. You can follow along with us. The page number for this passage is there. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one uh, from the page in front of you or the, the chair in front of you and follow along with us. We're going to be starting in the end of chapter 3 today and going to the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, and the reason we're breaking it up is uh, understand the, the chapters and verses in the Bible uh, are not inspired. They're not uh, part of the original. They were put in many, many years afterwards, so they just kind of broke it up to make it easier to find things in the Bible. So we're kind of going beyond the page markers to where the text actually breaks up. And this is a song that was written about love. This book in particular uh, focuses on sexual and romantic love. It's a whole book in the Bible talking about this gift of sexual and romantic love. And it's written in a, a poem, a song. And so we're taking it based on its big refrains and, and phrases and, and teaching you accordingly as you do so. So we're not going to always follow the exact chapter breakups. One of the things we want to get to, though, today, hang on. We're having some more technological difficulties. Why am I not seeing these? Are you guys good to go up there? We're going to just go from up there, okay. I'm just going to shut that down. They'll follow me. This book uh, is a book, as I mentioned, it's written about a couple, uh, and it is a story that Song of Solomon wrote, Solomon, the King Solomon wrote, uh, describing this relationship he had from courtship through marriage. And we're going to be looking at it in pieces as we go through it. And there's a song that kind of captured their courting period. We looked at that last year. It was a picture of their wedding night, a very small section of it. Last week, tonight, we're going to look at their wedding night again, maybe from Solomon's perspective as he's the primary speaker. And then the next three weeks, we're going to look at their relationship as it developed through tensions, through reconnecting, and through commitment as they go through their marriage. So... Those are the kind of the journeys where we're at. So if you have your Bible with you, Song of Solomon chapter 3 is where we're going to start, uh, starting in verse uh, 6. We're going to read from there, and you can follow along. The, the beginning part of this is a wedding. Okay, so it's the procession, the typical in a Jewish wedding, that the husband would go and fetch his bride for the wedding ceremony and bring her back. So that's what we see here. And we're just going to read through this. We're not going to talk about any principles in here, so to speak. We're just going to capture it for the setting. And then we're going to see after that the bride and groom in a very intimate moment. And you're actually going to watch them make love today. I don't have any pictures. We're just going to look at the text. And that's the truth. God has put this right in the Bible for us to see what this is supposed to be like, the gift that it is, and how it's to be intended. So let's pray, and then we'll open up God's Word and take a look at what 
this has to say. Father God, um, as we deal with these intimate topics, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts today. Speak to our hearts on a topic um, that we as a church and we even as parents and Christians have often failed to be open and honest and forthright about. Lord, we have allowed every other part of our society to address these issues except us. So, Lord, my prayer would be that as we open your word today, that you would open our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would open our minds to these truths, and that they wouldn't just be uh, things that we know in our heads, but they would be things we would put into practice in our lives, that we might experience the transformation that you desire in our lives, in every area of our lives, even the most private and intimate areas that you have created for us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My first conversation about sex with my parents happened uh, approximately uh, one week before I got married in a fast food restaurant with my dad. Unfortunately, it was uh, far too late for the damage and harm that I'd already caused in my life and in the lives of others, and it was far too short to really give me a picture of how to go forward uh, in my life to handle it in a healthier way. And my guess is uh, that this pattern is very true for many of you. We, we have failed to have real, open, and clear conversations with our kids about sex, and the church hasn't been much better with that, thinking that sex isn't a topic for good, godly, conservative people to be talking about. I mean, in, in particular in God's house, I mean, how disrespectful to talk about sex right in front of God. We can laugh at that, but that's how many of us think. So that leaves us with the schools, and it leaves us with the media. The schools, unfortunately, remove any moral and spiritual component from it and only address the medical and social aspects about it. You'll learn about things like ovaries and ovums, gonads and gonorrhea, in school. They'll teach you about Ephesians tubes. Wait a minute. I, I, I mean Philippians tubes. That's what they are, right? Okay, okay, so I, I got those wrong, but I'm just trying to get the Bible into the school somehow, so if we can kind of incorporate those things in, we'll, we'll be okay. And yet they miss out on the powerful aspect of the emotional and spiritual component of our sexuality. That just leaves the media. And nowhere has a greater lie been perpetrated than in the media. Because our movies, our TV, and our magazines will tell you you can have as much sex with as many people as you want, and that's going to be all kinds of fun. And you'll never get hurt. And, and if you do get hurt, it'll only last until you find that next partner that will somehow take all that pain away from previous relationships. I find it a bit ironic that the very people who portray this image in Hollywood and in the media are the people that have the most messed up relationships in all of our society. And yet we listen to them and follow their practices. So today we want to take a look at what we really need to know about this topic. Because if we don't wise up about God's plan for enjoying a sexual relationship, we are doomed to continue in the path of hurt and pain 
that's been passed down from generation to generation. So today we're going to literally, as I mentioned, watch a couple make love. We're going to see it recorded in this song and learn principles about how it should be done in a way that honors God and honors each other. Next week, we're going to talk about sexual tension. We're going to see this couple go through some disappointments and some sexual tension in their relationship and learn how they adjust and how they adapt and how they address that. Then we're going to see later, the next week, how they keep this sexual side of their relationship fresh. How do they not just let it go to the wayside like is so common in many of our relationships uh, and, and it's not intended to be that way. We're going to see how they keep it fresh and keep the spark alive in their relationship. And then we'll close out this part of the series watching them make a deeper commitment as they deepen their commitment to each other for the long haul. So today we're going to take a look, as I mentioned, about at the wedding night and how they uh, engage each other through this great gift that God gives them. So in the words of the great theologian Marvin Gaye, Let's get it on. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 6 says this. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. That, that word litter is not how we would use it today. Okay, It's a, it's a carriage or a couch. It's like those... Uh, Things you'd see in the movies where four people are carrying it and the, the king and the queen are riding inside, that's what that refers to. So this is picturing Solomon on the wedding day. He's gone to snatch his bride. He's gone to her home, and he's picked her up with this whole entourage, and they're riding back to Jerusalem, and the song is portraying it as this majestic day. It said, is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men. So rather than just a few groomsmen, he's got these 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So we see here just the pomp and circumstance and the beauty of this wedding day, and it's all set up. And now we're going to go from the pomp and circumstance of this whole thing into the bedroom. That's where the song turns. And now you're going to see the two of them after the whole wedding and all the ceremony is gone, talking to each other and, and moving into their first night together, intimately experiencing this gift of sex. So Solomon's the speaker here, and he says this. As we saw the first week, we saw the, the wife reflecting on it. Now we're going to see it more from the husband's perspective. He's going to be the primary speaker in this song or this part of the song. He says this, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, I know that doesn't sound all that romantic, <laughs> and I would encourage you not to use that on your wife tonight. It's not going to get you nearly as much as it did him. <laughs> but here's what he's saying. 
and, and, and an Israelite woman would have normally had her hair up. So she has her hair down now. And what he's saying is that if you remember her hair, she had dark hair. And the goats in their time were black. And so what he's doing is he's taking an image of a shepherd. And, and when the goats came down the mountains, it looked like locks coming down the mountains in the evening, and it was a beautiful picture. And what he's saying is that when you let your hair down, which was only usually done by a Jewish woman in a very intimate setting, he said it's like those goats. It's a, they decorate that mountain, and it's a beautiful sight. That's what they look like. That's a little more romantic than probably how you interpreted it, right? All right, we're moving on. He says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost its young. So basically she has all of her teeth, and that's pretty romantic. <laughs> he didn't marry a girl from Arkansas. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to throw that out there. But you know that it, it's healthy. She's taking care of herself. They bear twins, meaning if you know anything about deer or those things, when they're healthy, when they've been well-fed, a pregnant deer that's been well-fed, is almost always going to bear twins. If it's a drought and they haven't eaten well, they're maybe only going to have one. So he's, he's using images that would have been common to them and just saying, you're beautiful to me in every way. He says, your lips are, are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone and on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Now, again, that doesn't sound all that romantic to us, but a tower would have been a symbol of strength for that king, the t Tower of David, and the shields hung on it were the shields of the warriors when they'd come back from battle, and they would hang their shields on the tower of the king whom they were supporting. And the more shields that were there, the greater respect they obviously had because he had such a great ar army. So what he's saying is that just your neck, just your, your demeanor, who you are, garnishes great respect. People have such high regard for you. Because only a king of great regard would have all the shields of these great warriors piled up on his tower, indicating the support they had for him. So he's complimenting not just her looks, but her character and who she is. He says in verse 5, now we're getting away from character here. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are all together beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. So he's, he's moved from just speaking romantically to stating his intentions. Okay, there's nothing hidden behind this. He's saying, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh. We saw in chapter 1 that she had a sachet of myrrh between her breasts, she said, that was a fragrance. And now he's saying, I'm going to the mountain of myrrh tonight. I mean, there's not a whole lot of interpretation necessary for that passage right there, guys. In the hill of frankincense, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. I'm going to skip verse 8 and go to 9 because verse 8 is a separate principle. But listen to how he continues to talk in verse 9. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. Remember, he's repeating back to her what she said about him we saw in, in chapter 1. 
So you see, but when you put the two together, you see this conversation of the two of them speaking to one another and talking about their outer beauty, their inner beauty. They're talking about how much they love each other, how, how captivated they are by each other. And the fragrance of your oils and any spice, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. I, I don't know how he would know that unless he was kissing her at that moment. And, and we know what kind of kiss that is when there's honey and milk underneath your tongue. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about right here. The sad thing is, is, is France didn't even be, wasn't even established as a country until 2,000 years later. And so he's experiencing a very intimate kiss with his wife that far predated the French kiss that we read about many years later. These Hebrews and God himself knew what true intimacy is between two people who were committed to one another. And it's a beautiful thing being described here. So here's your first point, is a healthy sexual relationship requires intimate communication. A healthy sexual relationship requires intimate communication. What's beautiful here is here's Solomon, who has both the strength and courage of a king, and yet the tenderness and kindness of a poet and musician when it comes to speaking with his wife. He could express how he felt about her. And maybe he would use images that were different than hers. Don't get me wrong. It may have been a little clunky for her to hear, Tower of Lebanon. I don't know that I want my neck described that way. But she got the gist of it. And he was using images that captured how he saw her and how others saw her in every way. He expresses his desire for her in a romantic manner without just rushing in. He doesn't just open up the door and say, come on, honey, let's go. He, he talks to her, and within that he says, I want you today. I want you tonight. This is our night, honey. And he, he's expressing all those things and, and can communicate it in a way without just rushing in and, and pushing before she's ready. There's intimate communication between this. And in chapter 1, we saw her conversation kind of putting the two together between these two. But that's so important as a, a healthy sexual relationship requires this kind of intimate communication. You need to be able to talk to each other in this way. It's a unique way in which you don't talk to anyone else. And what's sad today is people are avoiding this in the proper setting of their own marriages and they're engaging in it through texting and chat rooms and all these other environments in which it was never intended to take place. And God's saying, I wired you for this kind of communica communication, for this kind of intimacy with one other person. And this couple is modeling that with each other. The second thing we see is, and is couched right in the middle of that communication. You see, it's not just intimate sexual conversation with one another, which is okay in the proper setting. You see the other side of that in verse 8. Right in the middle of this communication, he makes a statement that says also how he feels about her outside of the sexual realm. He says in verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Remember, she lived in the northern part of Israel, northern Galilee, which is right near Lebanon. Lebanon was kind of the wild country, the mountainous country. So she was a country girl. He was a city guy, obviously living in the, in the Jerusalem, in the king, in the castle. He says, Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak 
of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the den of lions, from the mountains of leopards. So he's saying, you live in this wild country, and those peaks were the kind of the roughest peaks in that area. Storms would often uh, hover over that Armana mountain. And that's where a lot of thunderstorms would come rolling in. The dens of lions. He's saying, you live in an area where there's lots of danger. And he's saying, come with me, my princess. Come with me. I want you, I want to take you from this dangerous place and protect you in my home. I want you to be with me. He's not just speaking these romantic words to to have a one-night stand. Guys, these terms are to be spoken to someone whom you've committed to protecting and wanting to be with indefinitely in your life. That's our second point, is a healthy sexual relationship requires a desire to protect and be with each other. He isn't just flattering her to get something from her. He wants to protect her, and he wants her to be where he is. He's using a a relationship and a statement that says, I'm bringing you from Lebanon. You're going to live with me. We are going to be together now forever. He's making that commitment. If a man won't commit, let me just speak to you real quickly, ladies. If a man won't commit his life to you and protect you and plan to be with you until death, you should never offer him the gift of your sexuality. You don't ever use sexuality to secure a commitment from a man. It will leave you so hurt and so disappointed if you do. That is a gift that God has given you to give to the one man who says, I will protect you, I will take care of you, and I will be with you until someone lays this body in the ground. And when you first find a man who loves you like that, who commits to you like that, you now finally have the safe environment for which you can offer him that gift. Solomon was that kind of man. And that's why she was willing to do what she's going to do throughout the remainder of this chapter. And that's why God's portrayed this picture like this is because it's so important. Thirdly, as we move on, we're going to see in verse 12 through 15 that Solomon begins speaking to her again and describing her. And listen, he's going to use garden imagery. He says, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed, Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Solomon is using garden language to describe his wife. And in particular, the sexual aspect of his life. And this would have been an image that didn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but in their time, everyone would have got it. See, when you built a garden or when you had a field, you would always build a wall around it and you would lock it off. You can read in Proverbs about the fool who lets his wall get broken down and his field goes to shambles. Why? Because in their day, animals would come in, varmints would come in, and they would try to dig it up. They'd try to tear it up and they'd try to eat the produce. Thieves would come in and try to do the same thing. They would try to take the crops. And guess what? When your wall is broken down, 
when your door is broken down, guess what fruit, guess what produce the animals and thieves are going to steal first? They're going to steal the best stuff, right? Anytime a thief breaks into your house, they don't look for the junk in your house. They look for the very, very best stuff they can grab and snatch it and go. And Solomon's painting a picture here of how she has sexually done that with herself. He says, you're a garden locked. You've been sealed up. You have preserved yourself in such a way. You've protected yourself from varmints coming in, from thieves coming in, and now you have your very choicest produce to offer to your husband. He's exalting her virginity. We talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago of how our society mocks that nowadays. The Bible exalts it because exclusivity is a great gift. Look at what he says. He says the choicest fruits, the choicest spices, he describes her as, because of how she has protected herself and guarded herself. A healthy sexual relationship requires sexual purity. That's our third point. A healthy sexual relationship requires sexual purity. You see, purity is both vital before and after the marriage. And any time we engage outsiders in those relationships, we, in a sense, share or give away our choicest fruits to someone who does not deserve them and should not have them. It's so important that we value this. You know, I, I, here's, here's an image for you maybe that will help you. If you're, if you're getting married and, and you're getting ready for the wedding day and your spouse has a choice, doesn't matter, all expenses covered, they have a choice of, of shopping that day from Goodwill or from Giorgio Armani. What would your choice be? How do you want them to come dressed to your wedding, from Goodwill or Giorgio Armani? All expenses paid. Everyone's going to say, well, I don't want them wearing used clothes. I want them wearing the best that they can possibly look. It's a special day for us. But if that's true for our clothing that we wear for a day and then put off, how much more important is it for us as a person to offer our very best to our spouse on that day? Do you want to offer yourself as goodwill, used material, or Giorgio Armani? I'm not saying in using this strong image to be judgmental. I'm saying it because until we break the lies that we have begun to believe as people, we're never going to treat this area of our lives differently. Church, I was goodwill on our wedding day. I was goodwill material. If I'm judging you, I'm judging you. Well, I take that back. I think I had I'd upgraded to Burlington Coat Factory by the time our <laughs> wedding came because we, we, uh, someone sh showed us this midway in between our dating. We recommitted to purity during that time till our wedding. And so God was gradually beginning to change us and purify us as we went into it. So I don't sit here as one pointing a finger. I share that image because until someone taught me that giving myself away as much as possible before marriage is the best thing for you, instead that exclusivity is, I wasn't willing to change. I didn't see how foolish I was. God wants you to offer 
your very best to your spouse. So let me just pause for a minute and talk about something that we need to talk about. And if you have a pencil, write some of these things down. I want to pause here and say, what if I've blown it already? Is there hope? And, and this probably applies to many of us, if not most of us here today. If, if I've blown it, what can I do? How can I recover from damaging sexual purity? Okay, how can, I, how can I recover this? I want to give you just three simple steps. They're not simple in themselves. They're simple in terms of what you need to do, but you have to do the work to do this. If you've blown it as a single or a married couple, what can you do? The first is this. Acknowledge that it was wrong and acknowledge the hurt that was caused by it. If you just say, I'm sorry, and try to move on, and you don't stop to think about, how have I hurt this person? How have I hurt myself? How have I hurt either my future spouse or my current spouse because of this? You're never going to understand how important this is. So the first thing is, is you have to own it. And if that means you as a married man having to address something that you thought, if I just keep this secret, it would be more hurtful to share this with my spouse than to just try to put it behind me, you are so wrong thinking that hiding it is going to help you. You will never experience what God wants for you in your relationship until you come clean in this area. Second step is reclaim a secondary virginity until married, if you're a single, or a secondary purity in your marriage. Reclaim that. And start from here. Don't just say, well, I've blown it already. I guess it doesn't matter at this point. No, you can continue to do damage that becomes more and more irreparable the longer you walk down that path. So after you've owned it, reclaim a secondary virginity or a secondary purity in your marriage and choose to go forward in a redemptive way. Don't keep doing the same things that have harmed your relationship. And thirdly, do whatever it takes to get healthy. Do whatever it takes. Don't just go back into your same patterns. If you're single, then I would say date in group settings. Date in group settings. If you're tempted when you're private, don't go there. Don't be private. Avoid overly private or intimate settings. Clearly define your physical touch boundaries and be accountable to someone. As this passage says, or this whole song, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't say, hey, we're going to hop in bed and we're going to start touching each other, but we're going to stop when it comes to actual sexual relations because we want to stay pure. That never happens. Don't stir it up. And so you have to talk with your partner and say, what is it? At what point does your engine start to turn on? And that's not a bad thing. That's God's designed it that way. But at this point, until we've made that commitment, we don't want to cross that boundary and have that conversation and then avoid those situations. Husbands and wives, you need to do whatever it takes to reclaim that purity. And that may mean your relationship looks a little different for a period of time until that happens. Whatever it takes, be willing to do that. Now let me just pause here for a moment while we're in the midst of this and address what has become epidemic in our society, pornography. Profits from pornography exceed that of the three largest sports franchises or, or leagues in the America, the NFL, the NBA, and the Major League Baseball Association. All of their profits, the profits of pornography, exceed all of those three put together. People, this is epidemic. Statistics say that 50% of professing Christians 
say they struggle with pornography. So I'd be a fool to look out upon our church and think that that's only going on outside. So I want to talk to you very directly, very firmly, but very lovingly and seriously about something that will absolutely destroy your sex life, but that the media will tell you will heighten it. Pornography. I've watched people personally go from casual use to absolute sexual perversion. People who have been part of this church. Many people. You don't just casually enter into this. You will either go down that path or you will seriously address this issue and let Jesus change you from the inside out. If you address it, there is hope for restoration. But the longer and further you go, the more irreparable damage you will do. There's no innocent browsing and there's no non-damaging glances or looks into this stuff. It not only hurts your spouse, even if they don't know it, but it damages you. I've seen it. I've seen how as people engage more and more in pornography, here's one of the things I notice: They become more and more selfish and less and less aware of it. Everyone around them notices it, but they themselves are totally blind to it. It ruins your soul when you misuse this gift that God has given you. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5 when he talked about the seriousness of this. Look at in Matthew 5, 27. Uh, if you bring that verse up, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he talks about the seriousness. of What do we need to do to address it? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. What Jesus is saying is he's, he's using hyperbole and exaggeration in one sense to address the seriousness of it. He's saying go to whatever length it takes to address this issue in your heart. He's not saying you better poke your eye out because Jesus knows you could poke both your eyes out and, and, and as soon as you get out of the hospital, you're going to be lusting again. If you haven't dealt with the heart issue, he's just talking about how serious you need to address this because it will absolutely destroy your soul if you continue to walk down this path. In my 13 of years of ministry, I've only seen two paths for pornography users. They treat it with seriousness, as Jesus mentions it, doing whatever it takes to seek forgiveness and create boundaries, or they live in denial and slowly watch every relationship you have and your personal sex life be flushed down the drain. That's all I've ever seen. Those two options. I want to encourage you to do something about it. I put in your worship guide uh, four websites. You can see them in your notes at the bottom of different ministries uh, that have been developed to specifically minister these. And I put these here so that you can take some time and peruse them uh, through. These are ministries that deal with uh, people who have walked through this or are in the midst of it and, and want freedom from it. I'd encourage you to take some time to do that and share with someone else to help you. You're going to need that support. And you're going to find support and encouragement here if you'll be honest with it and be willing to move forward. 
Last thing we see in this passage is in chapter uh, 4, starting in 16. So after he's expressed this, now you're going to see that they they come together in this last scene. And watch what happens. After he's spoken to her like this, in verse 16, she's speaking now, Shulamite, and she says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. And you're exactly right to think that is an extremely sensual statement. The north wind was a strong cold breeze. The south wind was a gentle warm one. And she's just saying, come, blow over my garden. Let its spices flow. She's saying, I'm open to you. And then she says this, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then Solomon says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the chorus chimes in and says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's that sexual love, that gift that God gives us in the right context. My final point is this. A healthy sexual relationship requires a proper perspective on and responsiveness to sex. A proper perspective on and responsiveness to sex. Let me just help you see the principles that we see in this passage really quickly. Okay, the first is a viewpoint of sex. Sex was given for deep enjoyment. I love what Woody Allen said. Woody Allen said this, sex is the most fun you can have without laughing. You know, he didn't even have a proper perspective, but he, he did have a big picture in the sense that it's a gift. Sex is a beautiful and important part of a marital relationship. It's not just for procreation, nor is it simply to be endured. It is a gift that God gives you, and, and it's shared here. He says, eat, drink, and be drunk with love. So you have it a celebration. It should be something that is so special in your relationship. Let me just pause here for a moment. Because there are people, very common today, that have been deeply hurt by this issue. They've been sexually abused. They've been uh, put in very harmful circumstances and all this. And, and, and there can be medical reasons that go on. So, so let me just pause and say to this, that I'm not saying that it's going to be like this, and it should be like this, just like this, and you just snap your fingers and say, I've got to change my perspective, and that's all fixed. Hear me out. That's not what I'm saying. There are people who have been deeply hurt in this arena, and it's going to take some time for you to heal on that. Okay, you do not need to beat yourself up because you don't feel this way in that area. You do need to understand that sex itself is a beautiful thing. And what happened to you is not an example of sex being used properly, but it's a harmful person who has hurt you. Not sex, but that person has hurt you deeply. And you may need to see some counseling. You may need to address this and work through it. What I wanted to communicate here today is the sex itself, the gift, is good, even though someone may have used it horribly to harm you. Are you with me on that and understand that? So it's not something that's just going to change overnight when your perspective changes, but it gives you something that you can work towards in your life. The second thing we see in here is after you see this perspective that's a good thing, you see also a perspective of each other. He sa- she says, awake, blow upon my garden, but then she changes it as this going to their wedding night and says, let my beloved come to his garden 
and eat its choices fruits. And then he says, I came to my garden, my sister. I gathered my myrrh. They have a, a perspective that Paul elaborates on in 1 Corinthians 7, that when you enter into marriage, God says that your bodies become each other's. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, God says the husband has authority over his wife's body and she has authority over his body. You are given to each other as a gift. That's how deep the commitment is. And that means you understand that. Now, now that may look different for each person. Husbands, I, I don't want to break the news to you, but... but your wife may want you to use your body more to listen to her and validate her. Say this with me, validate. I'm going to teach you a new word today, validate. Say that, guys. There you go. You just took, that's like foreplay just to, to know that word for you. I'm just telling you. They may want your body to simply listen and engage and, and, and relate to them more than they desire your great sexual prowess. I, I'm just telling you the facts, guys. And if that's the case, if you're not ready to listen, if you're not ready to engage with them, and you don't have time to hear about what's happening in their day, then you're not ready to be married. You're not mature enough to handle this gift. You need to own that. She has authority over your body, and she may need you to sit there and hear her out to feel connected to you. Okay? And the opposite side, ladies, you need to understand the physical side of the relationship is extremely important to your husband. I'm, I'm speaking in general categories. Sometimes this is flipped around in a relationship. I understand that. I'm just speaking about how it is typically. And you need to know that, that your husband can be deeply ministered to and loved by how you respond just like she was responding to him in this area. You can love him in a deep way by how you respond to him here. And if you're not ready to do that, if you're not ready to see that your body is a gift that God's given you to offer to your husband in that way, then you're not ready to be married. You've got to consider what it is that each of you are entering into and how you give yourselves to each other as a gift. That responsiveness and perspective is so important. And when we see those two things, when we see that perspective and we see those aspects, it causes us to be responsive. You see him, he's responding to her by communicating. He engages in that whole process. He doesn't just rush in or, or bulldoze over her. She's responsive to him. She comes awake. She speaks sensually to him. She invites him in, and there's this beautiful volleying back and forth. That's part of the sexual relationship. But as we get older, you know what we often do? Is we don't volley anymore like a good tennis match. We, we volley over, and it's smash back. Right? We get home uh, from work, and our wife goes, Hey, honey, how was your day? And you go, That was her volley. And you go, Fine. Smash. She goes, well, let me tell you about my day a little bit. Well, it all started, you know, I woke up this morning, and I don't know if it was my pillow, but my neck was sore, and I took some Tylenol, and I got in the shower. I took a really long, hot shower, hoping it was loosening it up a little bit, and, and, you know, she's volleying, and you go, honey, I'm trying to watch the game. Smash. Then a little later, the game's over, and you're sliding into bed, and she's laying there all snuggled in, and you're going, hey, honey. It's been a while since we've reconsummated our marriage. How about tonight? And she goes, there's your volley. She goes, I got a headache. Smash! 
Hey, you got to learn to play tennis again, guys and girls. It's about bouncing, volleying back and forth, and you see that in this relationship, that they took the time to value each other and let that process blossom in their relationship. We're going to see more of that as, as the, the message goes on. But no one here today, as we know, has, has done this perfectly. There may be a small minority here today that might be able to say these principles have characterized your relationship. But my guess is the majority of you have blown it big time in one or more of these areas that we've talked about. So what hope is there for you? Well, when we see how God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh and live a perfect, sinless life, we have to understand that part of that was to redeem us even in this area of our lives. I want you just to pause and think that Jesus Christ not only came and lived sinlessly, but he remained a virgin his whole life here on earth. He never had one lustful thought. He never even engaged in the blessing that God permitted of sexual love in a marital relationship. And, and let me just clear the, the, the room a little bit, guys. Jesus had every single body part and every single urge that you and I have. We sometimes disengage him from the reality of manhood, and there was no greater man who ever walked this earth. And not once did he even engage in the gift that he offered. Why would he do that? Why would he not even enjoy it? I'll tell you why. The scriptures tell us why. Because he didn't have a bride that was pure enough for him to marry. He was waiting for that bride, and none existed on this earth. So what he did in his love is he chose to live the perfectly pure life and then lay that life down so that he could purify you and me who are so broken in this area and many others and prepare for himself a bride that was worthy of his beauty. What's so amazing is right in the middle of the greatest passage in the Bible on marriage, Jesus pops up look at this passage with me, Ephesians 5. Can you go to Ephesians 5? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it starts talking about him, and I've capitalized where it talks about him. And he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus did that for you and for me. He couldn't find a bride pure enough, so he made his purity available to you and me. And when you trust him as your Savior, when you recognize how broken you are and how, how much and how prone we are to blow it in these areas and we rely on him for our purity and not on our own means you're essentially saying I do to his proposal to you and when you become his ch child when you become 
his bride. He will accomplish what he promised. He will begin to deal with the spots and blemishes and wrinkles in your life. And guaranteed, he will make you pure. For that day, you will see him face to face. So wherever your past might be, if you know you have a future of absolute purity with the greatest groom, the most beautiful lover who's ever walked this earth, that hope can change for you a present and cause you to live a more holy life in this particular area, waiting for him. Church, imagine that day. Imagine Jesus, the greatest lover, the strongest lover, the most creative lover, the wealthiest lover, the most faithful lover. Imagine what his bride must be like. She's going to be incredible. That's us, church. Imagine what his wedding's going to be like. Imagine the feast and the celebration it's going to be. That's for you and for me. You're going to be there. And he is not going to allow anyone there that is not perfect and unblemished. And he is beginning that work in you right now as you trust him. And as we put these principles into practice, we begin to today experience just a taste, just a shadow of what awaits us for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that unlike our imperfect earthly fathers, and many of us are included in that, you didn't shy away from talking to us about some of the most intimate aspects of living in this world one of them being sex. Thank you for that gift. Lord, forgive us for not stewarding it the way you desired and designed it to be. So Lord, we sit here as a broken, humble people asking you to do what you have promised. We trust you. We're willing to change in this area. So Lord Jesus, make us that unblemished bride that every one of us longs to be so that we can offer ourselves fully and wholly to you. The only love that will truly ever satisfy our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.